Well, we're in our season of Lent, and we're doing a series called Giving It Up. And we've been focusing the idea that often we give up something for Lent. I know some of you are joining me in a two-meal fast each week during the six weeks of Lent. And we do that not because we're trying to prove to God our righteousness or how good we are. We're simply trying to identify in a small way with the suffering of Christ who gave his life on the cross on our behalf. Our series is trying to focus on things we might want to give up a little bit more permanently, things a little bit deeper, things like attitudes, habits, practices that keep God from being more in our life. So thus far we've talked about giving up control, we've talked about giving up expectations, we talked about last week giving up superiority, today we focus on giving up enemies. Now, in two weeks, we're going to share the Gospel of Matthew's version of the Palm Sunday event. And today, we get Luke's version, which has a little different slant on it, especially the way he puts Jesus' procession into Jerusalem in the context of when he also takes time to weep over Jerusalem. It takes the focus a little bit away from the sacrifice of Jesus to also focus upon that he's the Prince of Peace, that he's the one who shows us a different way to go about life, to go about our relationships, to go about how we deal with the conflict that's in our world. Now, on that morning, that Palm Sunday, the day after the Jewish Sabbath, the disciples were sent to go fetch a donkey. And it was kind of an odd errand. After all, we have nowhere else in the scriptures that records Jesus riding a donkey. He walked everywhere. He just walked 90 miles from Galilee to Jerusalem. So it's significant that he chooses to ride into the city on a donkey. He would have come from the east, from the Mount of Olives. And riding that donkey was clearly making a statement. We know that King David rode on a donkey because in his day, when Israel was a little less advanced and the roads were more primitive, riding a donkey was the smarter thing to do. It required less water, could go longer distances, but it also was more adept at handling the rocky terrain of Palestine. And so from then on, even though the roads improved, it became the practice of any one who ruled over Israel, who identified with King David, especially him as that shepherd king, to also run, come into the city on a donkey as well. So when Jesus rode in on a donkey, he was making a statement. And it was a declaration, finally, after all this time, he's allowing himself to be declared the Messiah that they're expecting, the king over Israel. Matter of fact, Zechariah 9.9 makes this statement very strongly. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey. So Jesus is identifying himself with that shepherd king, King David, one who comes humbly. Now there were two other processions coming in to Jerusalem on that very day. From the west would have come Pontius Pilate, and when he came in, he would have come with a thousand soldiers on chariots, on horseback, and also on foot. They would have had spears and shields and all the regalia that comes with the army in order to intimidate 
the populace, especially as they gathered together on Passover. Remember, Passover signified the liberation of the Israelites from Egypt, something that the Romans would want to keep squashed. And just for good measure, Pontius Pilate would also plan to crucify a few rebels on Thursday of that week. And one more procession would have come from from the north, and that would have been King Herod. He was the ruler over the province of Perea and Judea, which is to the north and east of Jerusalem. He would have had his own entourage, and he was also known for his ruthlessness. He is the one that beheaded John the Baptist. He is also son of King Herod the Great, who is known for his ruthless character as well. Both he and Pontius Pilate were known for their oppression and their willing to resort to violence in order to maintain their rule and the rule of Rome. What a contrast there is between Jesus' procession and Pontius Pilate's and King Herod's. Jesus came in on donkey and they would have come in on horses. They waved palm branches for Jesus, branches of peace versus swords and shields and spears. Jesus had a ragtag bunch of peasants, widows, and contrast that with a thousand soldiers from the greatest army on the face of the earth. William Salse describes Jesus' procession as history's first nonviolent demonstration. This demonstration was for a king and kingdom built upon a radical desire to love God and a commitment to love one's enemies. And what makes Luke's version so unique, especially from what we'll read in Matthew, is that when Jesus came down from the Mount of Olives, he stops, he pauses, and he looks over the whole city, and he weeps. There's only one other time that Jesus weeps in the scriptures, and that was at Lazarus when he had died and before Jesus brought him back from the dead. He weeps and he declares, if you, even you, had only recognized the things that make for peace. And he predicts the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus knew that in spite of the cheering crowds, that soon he would be rejected as king. And why he wept was not his own rejection. It was the fact that they were rejecting his way, the way of peace, the way that calls us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, to do good to the wrong. Because he knew that it would not be long. Jesus would be gone and probably forgotten by many. But they would choose to use the sword to try to throw off the authority of Rome. And Israel would pay a very dear price. They would follow two would-be messiahs in AD 66. They would lead a revolt against Rome. In response, Rome sent 60,000 troops. They slaughtered one million Jews. And they burned the temple and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. If you go visit Jerusalem to this day, you can find there's a pile of large stones or boulders that it still exists from that time when Rome destroyed the city. And if you've been to Israel, then you know about Masada. Masada was where the remnants of Jerusalem fled after Jerusalem was conquered. It was a, a fortress up on a high hill that was almost impenetrable. And there they 
existed for several months. The Romans brought 8,000 troops, built camps around it. They began building a ramp up its side and then a tower above it in order to breach the wall of the fortress on top. And when they became very close, on April 15th at 73 AD, under the instructions of the Jewish leader Ben-Yar, everyone committed suicide, all 960 rebels and women and children, except for two women and five children who hid in a cistern. They took their lives because they had rather die than live as slaves under the Romans. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because he knew that was their future, because they choose to find their freedom through the sword instead of through his way of loving our enemies. So Jesus' call to love our enemies, I hope that you'll hear, is more than just a sentiment, it's more than just a call to holiness. It's literally a strategy for our world and for our way. Because the only way that love and hate is ultimately overcome is through, the only way hate and violence is overcome is through love and reconciliation. Our scripture today provides a vivid illustration of that contrast between Jesus' way and the human way. It echoes what Jesus teaches directly in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said you must love your enemies, you must love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who harass you so that you'll be acting as children of your Father who is in heaven. What I find interesting as I looked at this closely this week is that Jesus doesn't say that we shouldn't have enemies. He seems to assume that we'll have enemies. Every time he talks about it, he talks as if it's a matter of fact. Of course, for the Jewish people, their enemies were pretty obvious. It was the Romans, the people who had conquered them, the people who forced taxation on them, and the people who helped them to somehow live that bitter pill of being under the rule of a Caesar who claimed to be God in opposition to their one God. So we shouldn't feel guilty about having enemies. Matter of fact, we should hear it as normal. That we're all going to have people in our lives that we do not like and sometimes oppose. Especially in our political climate, it's nearly impossible not to have people around us that we disagree with. I would even suggest that if you do not have an enemy, you're probably not doing anything. Right? At some point, we're bound to step on somebody's toes. Am I wrong? If we're working for justice in this world, it means sometimes you have to challenge the powers that be, and people do not give out power easily. But hear this. Loving our enemies is more than a feeling. It's more than what is going on in our heart. It's choosing, in spite of that, to act in loving ways in the best interest of those that you may oppose. So I, I want to invite us to identify who our enemies might be. But before we do, I just want to say a couple things. First of all, let's not assume that because someone is our enemy that they're necessarily God's enemy. And know that whomever might be your enemy sometimes says more about you than it does about them. Sometimes there's this, this thing of mirroring that we see in others what we're most bothered about in ourselves. So right now I want to invite you to close your eyes and try to picture your enemy. And let me walk us through a list that 
hopefully will hit you somewhere. So first of all, think about who might be our historic enemies. You might name countries or nations or religious sects. People who have threatened our security and continue to threaten our security as a nation, as a people. You can probably think of political entities, philosophies, proponents of economic theories that oppose your principles. Pray for them. If we're honest, some of us might even name certain ethnic or social economic groups that we fear, that we just have a hard time being around because their differences make us uncomfortable. We can probably name some people that we've clashed with in the past. Somehow they push our buttons. We might not even be sure why. Maybe it's a coworker who always disagrees with our ideas. Maybe it's a family member who takes advantage of a loved one. Perhaps it's a business partner who's not fair in their dealings with us. Maybe it's somebody in our social circle who rubs us the wrong way. So picture that group, that person, that named entity, whatever it may be. Right now, pray for them. Pray for their well-being. Pray good things happen to them. Pray for your patience around them. Pray for your ability to see them as God sees them. And where it makes sense, pray for reconciliation. And when you're ready, you can open your eyes. Well, I hope it felt good at least for a brief time to be obedient to God. And nothing may have changed but perhaps something can begin to change in us. And if we do this over and over, I truly believe something will change in us. I think we'll get results. And here's why we need to love our enemies. Here's why we need to pray for those who may even persecute us. And that's because we're called to be like God. It's part of our Christian maturity. It's how we begin to see others as God sees them. Matthew 5, 46 to 48 says it well. If you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, just as your heavenly Father is complete, or teleos is the Greek word, in showing love to everyone, so also you must be complete or whole, teleos, it's our calling, part of our Christian growth, part of the process of sanctification. But we should also should love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us because it's literally healthier for us. I like the saying that someone has said that holding on to hatred is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. There's a lot of truth in that. It's, it's literally true. Because science has shown that there's hormones, lots of different hormones that cook up in us when we hang on to hate and anger. And it's okay in the short term to experience those things. 
but when we do it over and over, it literally changes our brain chemistry. It changes. We become so conditioned to that fight-or-flight response that it causes insomnia, anxiety, and sometimes depression. It can literally shorten your life because of hate. And, and the final reason that we should love our enemies is because, as Jesus points out, it's a good strategy. The opposite can lead to disaster, which is exactly what happened to Israel. The sword keeps people at peace as long as you hold the bigger sword. It relies on fear, but fear only works so long, and it comes at a tremendous cost. The only way to change the world, the only way to change a bad situation, the only way to improve a relationship is taking the way of Jesus, choosing reconciliation over intimidation, and risking love over fear and hate. I've mentioned Corey Timboom before. I had the pleasure of seeing her in person before she passed away. And Holocaust survivors are becoming very precious these days. It was in the Coliseum. And she was describing an experience that she had right after the war. She and her family housed a number of Jews as part of the underground network in the Netherlands. They believe they have an estimate that they probably saved 800 Jewish lives. Then they were betrayed. Her father was immediately sent off to a prison in the Netherlands. He did not last long. She and her sister were sent to a concentration camp in Germany, Ravensbrück, one of the worst concentration camps. And there she survived to the end of the war. Her sister was executed just 12 days before she was somehow miraculously set free. They think through some clerical error. And she was describing that when she was speaking to a crowd and someone came up after. She'd spoken on forgiveness. And he came up to her and, and introduced himself and she recognized him immediately. He was the SS officer that oversaw the processing center at Ravensbrook. He was the first person who was an actual jailer that she experienced in her time there that she saw face to face. And he came up to her and he said, thank you, I was so grateful for your message, Fraulein, to think that as you say, he has washed my sins away. And he reached his hand out. And she looked at that hand and she tried to raise her hand and she couldn't do it. All those memories flooded back and the ridicule, the embarrassment, the anger of the death of her sister. She prayed, but still she could not raise her hand. And finally, one more time, she prayed that silent prayer and asked God to give her the ability to forgive. And she raised her hand, and when she clasped his hand, she said, there was an energy that flowed from my shoulder through my arm to his hand. And in that instant, somehow I was flooded with forgiveness, and I truly had forgiven him, and my soul was free like I'd never experienced before. And she concludes, when God tells us to love our enemies, God gives along with the command the love itself. She knew she couldn't do it on her own, and neither can we. It's only truly a work of God. Now maybe you don't struggle to love your enemies, Maybe you don't feel you even have any true enemies. But my guess is if you're passionate about anything, 
It's hard not to run crossways with somebody. Jesus assumes that we will. And when we do, which way will you choose? Will you choose the way of Jesus who rode into town on a donkey? Or do we choose the way of Pontius Pilate and King Herod, the way of the sword? Jesus calls us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. Let's pray. Lord, we know we live in a violent world. And it's our natural, normal process to find every way possible to defend ourselves. Help us to find our ultimate security in you. And may we work for the ways of peace. For you are the Prince of Peace. And we declare you as our Lord and Savior and put our total and complete trust in you for all things. In Christ we do pray. Amen.